may be seated. Well, today we come to the very end of chapter 4 in John's Gospel, though we won't actually finish with chapter 4 until next week. Uh, If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you may remember that Dennis uh, mentioned how that early January snow threw us off by a week and that he already had to be out of town this week. Uh, And so he's going to finish his three-part series on the woman at the well uh, next Sunday. And so that means that today, as originally scheduled, uh, we come to Jesus' healing of an official's son, uh, which is found in John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. And if you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you, you will find that beginning on page 889. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our good and gracious God, we thank you once again for your written word, through which, by the power of your Spirit, we see the living word, Jesus. And so we now come in faith and we ask you to help us. Help us now to hear and to see that we might believe in him all the more. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. And so John chapter 4, beginning with verse 46. Hear the word of God. So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, There was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go. Your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, at 1 p.m., the fever left him. And the father knew that that was the very hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And this is the word of God. Well, here we see Jesus' second sign, at least as it's recorded and detailed by John. And to to understand it, we're going to explore it in the very way that that John lays the story out uh, before us in these three parts. Uh, Context, conversation, and conversion. So we'll first look at the context, uh, the setting of the story, uh, what leads us to this point. Uh, Then we will consider the conversation, uh, the interaction between this man and Jesus. And finally, we'll look at conversion. The journey of this man to true life-giving faith. 
So that's where we're headed. And we start with context. Uh, verses 46 and 47 and also uh, verse 54. So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. In verse 54, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Okay, so here we are, back in Cana. Actually, we were in Cana, I think it was back in October. Uh, But we are back there again today, as uh, John has us there as well. And this, if you remember, is where Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding. His very first sign. And now John records a second sign that Jesus does in Cana uh, of Galilee. And it's helpful to be reminded of, of the big picture, that this first half, as we've talked about before, this first half of John's gospel is built around seven signs. We've just come to the second, but soon we'll pick up speed and get to number three, four, five, six, and seven. But John, building this gospel around seven signs or miracles, and all of them pointing to Jesus as Son of God and Savior of the world. Now, of course we know that Jesus did many more miracles than just seven. But John has chosen these, these particular signs, to help us better see Jesus. And as you know, signs are never an end in themselves. They always point beyond themselves. And these signs always point to Jesus. And John doesn't leave us on our own to figure that out. In fact, he states very clearly the very purpose of his gospel. In chapter 20, he writes... These signs are recorded so that you may believe. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. And so here we see two primary themes of John's Gospel. A faith and eternal life. And this particular sign tells us about faith. It involves a man whose son is dying. Uh, He is a a royal official. That's what the the Greek word connotes. He's a royal official working uh, for the Roman government. And he lives over in Capernaum, which is about 20, 25 miles away from Cana. And so it's a full day's journey. And if you think back to that first son, think of the backdrop there. That was one of joy and celebration. It was a wedding. But this, the second sign, a very different backdrop. A one of suffering and desperation. Here is a man of rank and substance. A man with power, with resources at his fingertips. And he is completely helpless to do anything to save his son from dying. Well, the purpose of this particular sign is to tell us about the nature of faith. And like many, the journey of faith begins in desperation. So that's 
That's the context. That's the setting, the scene for us. Now, now let's move into the conversation. Now, this interaction between Jesus and the man that we find in verses 47 to 50. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. Now, have you ever noticed that many people do their best listening when they're not being spoken to directly? You know, I think about Heather and I with our kids. You know, we can speak very directly to our children sometimes, and they seem to hear nothing. But if it's after dinner and Heather and I are just sitting around the dinner table having a quiet conversation, and the kids have gone into the living room and they are playing, one of them is bound to say, Hey, what, what are you saying about me right now? Sometimes we best listen when we aren't being spoken to directly. And that's kind of what is going on here, only it's in reverse. Okay, so I want you to keep that in mind. We'll come back to it, but I want you to keep that in mind as we consider this interesting dialogue. The dialogue, of course, gets kicked off because... Uh, Jesus' fame has spread. Word has gone out through the region that this miracle maker, he's back. He's back in the area. He's back in, in Cana, but word has spread all the way over to Capernaum. And so this man, this man, has, he's probably heard about the signs and wonders, uh, the, the, the signs and wonders that Jesus has already done down, down south uh, in, the, in the big city of Jerusalem in the larger region of Judea. But now he's back in Galilee, specifically a few towns over in Cana. And for sure, he's heard about that very first sign. And this man's desperation has led him now on a desperate journey, leaving his dying son's side. And he is just hoping for a miracle. Now, I didn't read the, the previous couple of verses before our particular passage but one of the things we learn from them is that people throughout Galilee, they have welcomed Jesus back. In fact, they have gathered around to see the miracle maker. Is he going to do some more magic? And so this man now enters the scene. He enters the crowd, and he is in search of Jesus. And the man speaks to Jesus. It says, verse 47, that he asked Jesus uh, to come heal his son. Well, the Greek is a whole lot stronger than that. He didn't just simply ask Jesus. It says that he was imploring Jesus to come, begging him, please come save my little boy. And immediately, Jesus makes the conversation awkward. The man has just pleaded with Jesus for help, and Jesus basically rebukes the crowd. Did you catch that? And you may not have, given the, the particular translation that, that we're reading, but in verse 48, the you is actually plural. It's not singular. And some, some translations make this clear by having Jesus say, unless you people, unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't believe. 
And so what we've got before us is this man implores Jesus for his little boy, and Jesus rebukes the crowd. You people, you people, all you are out to do is see signs and wonders, but you miss the very thing they point to. You miss me. You don't believe. And so once again, we come across one of Jesus' enigmatic replies to someone's perfectly understandable request. What is Jesus doing? So Jesus addresses the crowd, but he is really speaking to the man. You see, Jesus knows why the crowd is there. He knows why they have come, but he wants the man to know why he is there. And so Jesus challenges the man. He pushes into the man. He is driving into the man's heart to refine his heart. Jesus challenges the man, basically asking So are you just one of the crowd too? Just here to see signs and wonders? Jesus wants to do more than just heal a son physically. He also wants to heal this man spiritually, eternally. And so when the man doesn't think that he is being spoken to directly, Jesus is actually helping the man listen more carefully. Because if there's going to be true healing, the man has got to see beyond the magic and see the Messiah. As one commentator puts it, Jesus is moving the man from mere belief in his power to personal trust in him as Savior. The man's heart is being challenged And it is being refined. And Jesus' odd reply is met with the man's persistence. And then the man's persistence is met with Jesus' next challenge. Verse 50. Go. Go without me. Go home. But trust me, your son will live. And so that's... The interesting conversation between these two. And so finally we come to conversion. We come to this, the journey of this man toward a a true life-giving faith. Conversion, verses 50 to 53. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, at 1 p.m., the fever left him. The father knew that that was the very hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. Again, Jesus is moving the man from mere belief in his power to personal trust in him as Savior. Here we see that the man takes Jesus at his word. It's not what the man had asked for specifically, but the way that Jesus answers, the man takes him at his word. Jesus says, go home. Go without me. Go home. Your son will live. And the man heads home. And when you think about that long journey, I mean, the man has come to get Jesus to come with him, to lay his hands on the son, and Jesus says, go. What a long journey home. Each step being one more step of faith 
And in many ways, he can see just enough to take that very next step, one step at a time. And as I was thinking about this long journey of faith home for this man, I was reminded uh, of a friend years ago, uh, an older Episcopal priest uh, at a small church down in North Carolina, a guy named Howard Backus. And I remember Howard grew up in West Virginia, and he told the story, he was talking about faith, and he told the story about his dad who had been a coal miner. And so, you know, we're going back a couple of generations, and he talked about the lamp, the headlamp that he had on the, the, the front of his helmet. Now, I mean, today the lamps are so powerful, you know, halogen, laser bright, but not then. His dad could, could literally only see about six feet in front of him in these dark coal mines. Now, he wanted to see more, but six feet was all he needed to take one more step forward, one step at a time, and then he could see a little bit more. And so when you think about it, the man can just see, that, that's kind of what's happening with the man, is he can just see enough to take another step on the journey. And each step toward home is a growing trust, a step of trust. Now, there's probably an ebb and flow in that trust, but a growing trust nonetheless. And so then, after an overnight stay on the journey home, I mean, remember, he, Jesus spoke to him at 1 p.m., so it was sometime mid-afternoon before he could leave and make the full day's journey, and no one traveled overnight. It was too dangerous, so he had to stay somewhere. So after this long overnight stay somewhere, the manservants, what great servants. I mean, they come running, looking for their master, but the manservants meet him on the road with excellent news. Great news. Your boy is recovering. And he finds out that the healing began the very moment, the day before, the very moment when Jesus had spoken. And it wasn't just the healing of this little boy that had begun, but also the healing of this man's heart. Verse 53 the father knew that that was the very hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed. Now note, it doesn't say, and he believed, but rather, and he himself believed. He himself. The, the double emphasis here indicates his arrival at true life-giving faith. Now, did he understand everything about Jesus at this moment? No. And for those of us who are Christians, neither did you or me when we first came to faith, nor do we now. But this man has arrived at true life-giving faith. That's what John wants us to hear with this double emphasis. The man has moved from mere belief in Jesus' power to personal trust in Jesus as Savior. The man has moved from mere intellectual assent, just putting the pieces that he's seen and heard together. He's moved from mere intellectual assent, believing that Jesus could do great things, to actually trusting the person of Jesus with his very life and all that matters most to him. He no longer sees Jesus as just a miracle maker, but as Messiah. And he himself believed. The man has moved to true life-giving faith. So what is true life-giving faith? What does it look like? 
Well, the key word here is the word belief. Translated elsewhere in the New Testament is, is faith or trust. Uh, in Greek, it's the word pistis. We talked about this before, the verb form being pistuo, meaning believe into, to trust wholeheartedly. It, it's the very same word that Jesus later uses in John 14 when he says, trust in God, trust also in me. And this word is about more than intellectual assent or the power of positive thinking. It's much more than just believing that Jesus is a great man or even a great God who can do great things. It's actually entrusting him with your very life and all that matters most to you. Pistuo involves action. Belief and action joined together. It's not just standing on the edge and acknowledging that the frozen pond is strong enough to walk on, but rather pistuo means that you're actually out there walking on the ice. Action joined with belief, entrusting everything wholeheartedly to Jesus, that is faith from a biblical perspective. So some of you know that I grew up in northeast Georgia, about an hour from, from downtown Atlanta. And uh, my family and I, we would often travel on the weekends up into the, the northeast Georgia mountains. And one of the places that we would sometimes go is Tallulah Falls, uh, Tallulah Gorge. A beautiful place, don't get too close to the edge, a little uh, scary. But there was a, a marker, and I remember it, there was a marker where one of the great Walendas had walked on a tightrope across Tallulah Gorge. Well, there was a, another much more famous tightrope walker, a guy by the name of Charles Blondin of France. Uh, he was back in the, the late 19th century, and this guy walked tightropes across Niagara Falls. Okay, anybody ever been to Niagara Falls? Okay, like, don't get close to the edge, right? I mean, this guy went over the edge. He, 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 and, and we're not just talking about, hey, he did this once to see if he could do it. He did it multiple times going on a tightrope out into the middle of Niagara Falls and then coming back to the crowd and everybody applauses. Well, after the applause, you know, after a while, I guess it gets boring to just walk out on the tightrope, so he did it blindfolded. Uh, he did it one time in a sack, you know, like in a sack race. Okay, I don't, can't figure that one out. Um, did it with a, a, a wheelbarrow full of a lot of stuff, goes out to the middle, turns, comes back. One time he went out there and he, with eggs and he cooked an omelet he sat down on the tightrope and ate the omelet while he was out there. Another time, took a chair, balanced it on one leg, and sat in it. And he lived a long life. He actually died of some other cause. He didn't fall. So, I mean, that, that makes the story even more amazing. But legend has it that one of the times when he went out with a wheelbarrow, with a couple hundred pounds of, of stuff in that wheelbarrow, goes out to the middle, turns around, comes back, everybody applauds. He says, how many of you think that I can carry a human being out to the middle and back? And everybody raises their hand. Yeah, until he asks for a volunteer. All hands go down. Why? Because the people believed that Charles Blondin could do great things. They believed that he could carry someone out to the middle of the tightrope and back. But it was mere intellectual assent. It was mere cognitive agreement because no one would actually trust him with their very life. 
And friends, there are many people today, many in the church, many people who say they believe in Jesus. Oh yeah, I believe Christianity to be true. But they really trust in something else. Something else to bring them. Hope, peace, happiness, security, whatever. You know, one of the... I mean, there are a lot of examples of, of, of things that we cling to. Uh, probably the, the most prominent, most significant for our culture would be money. Many people believe in Jesus, but they really trust in money. I mean, that's why we get so frantic, so consumed with, with stockpiling, investing, making more, making more, putting it away. And we become more individualistic, more turned in on ourselves rather than turned out loving God and others. That's why we struggle to give more and help more. People clinging to money rather than clinging to Jesus. Well, true life-giving faith, it's much more than just believing that Jesus is a great man or even a great God who can do great things. It's actually entrusting Him with your very life and all and everything that matters most to you. Friends, families, hopes, dreams. Entrusting it all. And that's what Jesus is getting at here with this man. And that's what Jesus is getting at here with you and with me today. Now one more thing, one very important thing about true life-giving faith before we wrap up. It is ultimately not about the strength of your faith. It is ultimately not about how strong or how weak your faith is. Because if you're a Christian, I mean, the strength of our faith, it ebbs and flows if we are honest with ourselves. What matters most is the object of your faith. You came in this morning and you sat down in a chair and it is holding you up. It doesn't matter if you sat down with great confidence or with very little confidence. What matters is the object of your faith, and in this illustration, it's the chair. And the chair is strong and secure. That is the object of your faith. How much more the God of the universe? How much more strong and secure is Jesus? Now, friends, maybe... Like me, there are times when your faith feels so weak, you wonder if it's even still there. Maybe there are times when you cry out in desperation. You cry out in pain, in weakness, in frustration, in discouragement, in despair, whatever it is. You cry out in what I would call a very weary faith. Maybe like me, you cry out, Lord, Jesus, I, I don't know what I've got. It's sure in the strong faith. Please help. Jesus, I believe, but it is not much. I am struggling. Please help my unbelief. Friend, that is true faith. That is honest faith. Because again, in the end, it is not about the quality of your faith or the quantity of it, but about the object of your faith. It's about Jesus. He who is our solid rock 
and our firm foundation at the times when we feel it and even at the times when we don't. It's about Jesus who was faithful to the end. He who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, dying for our sin, that we might be eternally forgiven and reconciled with God. And so we fix our eyes on Him. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of that faith. You see, we come to true life-giving faith, and we continue in true life-giving faith by trusting Jesus. And how do we do that? What does that look like? Let me leave you with this. Simply three practical lessons from this passage. And these originally come from Charles Simeon. Some of you may know that name, a great British preacher of the late 18th, early 19th century. And he ended a sermon on this passage with these three things. Number one, when you've got a problem, when you're suffering, like this man, Go to Jesus. Number two, let Jesus answer you in His own way, on His own terms. And number three, when He's answered you, however He answers, tell others that the whole household might believe. Good news for us and good news to share as we continue the journey of faith, trusting Him who is our rock and our Redeemer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank You that You are our solid rock, our firm foundation, our Redeemer. We believe Help our unbelief. Oh Lord, would you help us to trust you all the more in all things. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.